This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you this week from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I am the host of the podcast, Transformative Principal, author of the books, School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. And I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everybody. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. And this will be my last Brooklyn broadcast for a few weeks, but <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. I am the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics of 501c3, independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. And you know, Jethro, greetings to you on your far-flung trip, but it's very exciting because it looks like we're going to have a chance to apply for some incubator money with the Brooklyn Public Library, and it looks like it could be a really good fit for the center. So. We're off to a good start, I hope. Yeah, very good. There's all kinds of opportunities. I wore my Center for Cyber Ethics shirt in the airplane today and, you know, walked around with my shirt showing our insignia. And so, (laughs) you know, nobody talked to me because we don't do that anymore. Everybody's got their headphones on and we're focused. But uh, hopefully some somebody saw it and thought, you know, maybe I should look into that and um, and check things out. So that's that'll be fun. That's really terrific. Well, certainly we uh, will need to make it a standard part of our podcast that if anybody is aware of grant or funding programs that they think might be useful for this work, they should definitely let us know. 
Yeah, absolutely. Please do reach out to us. Either one of us, centerforcyberethics.org is there's a contact form and you can get in touch with us there. So, um, so let's talk about our topic today, which is um, a bit of a bummer. I hate to talk about negative stuff, but I think uh, it's important. We're talking about the Uvalde shooting and um, whether or not social media monitoring could have prevented it. So what else would you like to add here in the introduction, Fred? It's always a tough topic. And I um, felt bad as I started to put these notes together. But of course, I'm, I'm trying to grab the material that um, I think will be most useful to our listeners and of the most interest to uh, people who work in this area. And for us, Jethro, as, as people who have been involved in education and, and with our tech focus, the obvious question is what role does social media play in these kinds of events? And does it provide educators or law enforcement the opportunity to intervene before something happens? And unfortunately, we're developing a pool of data to answer those questions. And the answers are not necessarily satisfying. So in this particular case, um, in the aftermath of the attack, it's Uvalde, right? Because you actually live out generally in that area. Yes, generally in that area. I'm in the uh, in the northwest, which is almost as far away from Uvalde as uh, as you are in New York. Maybe I'm, <laughs> just shows you how big the West is. But in any case, yeah. uh, this particular incident, like so many others, um, had some precursors on social media that the individual who committed the attack on the school had posted photos of firearms as part of his social media feed, had made some increasingly specific threats, and had uh, really basically promised that he was going to do this to a young woman that he was speaking to just a few hours before the attack occurred. And when these things happen, you get a lot of people, including, I have to say it, some grandstanding politicians who immediately turn to social media and say, why didn't you prevent this? And I offer as exhibit A on that, Jethro, uh, the mayor of New York City, <laughs> Eric Adams, mm -hmm. who has been jumping up, on up and down on this soapbox. And one of the things I want us to do today is to help people understand the different kinds of channels that are out there and the challenges that they present in terms of investigation and in terms of prevention, because it's very simple to say, well, this stuff is on a computer somewhere, law enforcement should see it and it should be stopped. But when you dig down into how the technology works, it's not that simple. And of course, there's constitutional issues on top of everything else. Yeah, and, and I think that's a good place to start because we don't want everything that we post to be monitored by law enforcement just in case we say or do something that could be perceived as negative. Like, think about the movie Minority Report, right, where there's a whole division of thought crime where if you think it, then you have essentially already done it. And that is not the kind of system that I want to live in. Because I have plenty of bad thoughts that I would never act on, and <laughs> we all do. And so, yes, we do. <laughs> we do not want that to be the norm. We don't want that to be the uh, the the focus. 
Um, and so what we what we often say to people is be aware of what you post because somebody is always watching and what you once you post it online like it can it doesn't go away so somebody can screenshot it record it share it and invite and go on from there however we don't want the the authorities to be constantly monitoring everything that we're doing just in case we might do something inappropriate and then come and bust us for it right well exactly and and for reasons both uh, intellectual and bleak i have been uh, rereading George Orwell's 1984, and oh, given, I mean, it's just an amazing book, and if, if there's anyone listening who hasn't read it, you absolutely have to read this book, because it is amazing how much Orwell foresaw in, mm-hmm. you know, the, what was it, the early 1950s, the late 1940s when he wrote this book, Yeah, and one of the things you, you're introduced to at the very beginning of the book is the, is the um, screen that is installed in every home of a member of the party. And, and you know, he obviously he's riffing a little bit on, on Soviet Union and so forth. But these screens are set up in such a way that they can see and hear everything in the apartment in which you know, Winston Smith, the protagonist, lives. And he doesn't know whether or not somebody is actually watching at any given moment. So precisely to your point, you have to regulate your behavior on the assumption that you're always being watched. Yeah. So uh, shortly after his name was released, somebody found his uh, social media profile, his Instagram profile to be specific. Yeah. But he had other social media profiles like Yubo, I believe is what he was using to chat with somebody. I'd never even heard of that one before. Yeah, but same as, same here. Yeah. Yeah. As other uh software social media companies or online companies create messaging tools, all of those things become social media platforms basically that allow yes. you to communicate across great distances with people in near real time or real time and that really complicates things as well. So well, somebody they- found his I'm sorry, let me just, this one detail there. I mean, just by way of example, the young woman that he was messaging with on Yubo lived in Germany. Right. Amazing. I mean, he's striking up a friendship with someone across the Atlantic and confiding in her and what she's supposed to do. You know, who does she contact, you know, if she's concerned? Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, I'm glad you said that because that's the, the point that I was going to make is this guy did not have 2.5 million followers on Instagram. And I didn't see the, the screenshot of his profile that showed how many followers he had, but probably not a ton, right? And, and so of those who saw it, including this girl he chatted with on Yubo, what can they do about it when they see these kinds of posts coming across? Um, they can get in contact with the authorities. They can get in contact with somebody that, that they know who could be in the same area. I mean, the thing is though, is that it's really difficult to say, you know, just because somebody posted something that you might think is inappropriate or scary doesn't necessarily mean that they are planning to do something horrific, right? And so you have to, the the recipient or the viewer has to judge whether or not that warrants a, uh, a report to somebody to say better go check this kid out and see what's really going on and that's an exceptionally hard thing for 
especially a teenager to recognize what is serious, what is not serious, what's said in jest, what's said in, um, in a threatening manner. Um, and it's really a difficult thing to be able to understand. But the fact of the matter is there are still clues that everybody after a tragedy like this wants to know why something more wasn't done. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that what you're putting your finger on, Jethro, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is given the fragmented nature, right, of law enforcement in the United States, and given the distances that these messages can travel, let's say you're some kid in South Carolina, and you see a message that you may think originated in Arizona, or it could be New Mexico. You probably don't know the West that well, so you're not really sure right. where it is, <laughs> right? But, you know, the kids making a, let's just assume a credible, or not, maybe not credible, but a specific enough threat that you as a decent 15-year-old are worried, you know, that someone might get hurt. So who do you go to? Like, how are the South Carolina police going to respond to that or some local sheriff or even your school principal? And one of the real challenges that you and I are, have talked about and are confronting is the lack of centralization. But at the same time, you don't want to centralize surveillance of social media. Yeah. So, so the, the other wrinkle to that is that if I get a, a threat from someone, I have no idea who they are. I honestly, as a principal, don't take that as seriously as a threat from someone that I know within my community, right? And so sure. that, however, doesn't mean that I wouldn't do something about it. You know, I would, I would find the student in question as the principal and at least, at the very least, put eyes on him that day and say, to ask myself, what do I see here? Do I see someone who looks like they are like planning something? And like, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a profiler, don't get me wrong. It's just like <laughs> checking out the situation and saying, is this worthwhile? Now, there are, the other side of this is that there have been, we've talked about on here, the idea of swatting, that you send the SWAT right. team to somebody's house to, to uh, bully or, or punish them or whatever the case may be under false pretenses that are not true. And so- because of that negative behavior, you also can't overreact to all of these things that could come in. And we have no idea how much that stuff comes in. But I will say as a principal, I got plenty of false accusations that had no merit at all, but I still needed to do something to make sure that people were safe. Right. Because the downside of one mistake is so terrible that you can't, right. I mean, it's just the potential consequence is so vast. Well, look, Jethro, as I was researching um, after the Uvalde shooting, the number of false reports around the country absolutely exploded. And if, you know, that's not sort of a sign of societal mental illness, I don't know what there, what there would be, because it's just tragic that people would take this event and compound it by stirring up fear and anxiety and all the rest of that in communities elsewhere, you know, in the country. Yeah. I don't understand. I mean, I, mean it, I don't understand that either. And especially one of the things that I found really disturbing was that, um, that he said, I'm going to go shoot up an elementary school. And I saw other reports of other people saying something similar like that is, 
I don't understand how that is something that you one would do two would brag about and three would premeditate like, okay, good talking to you. Now I'm going to go do this. It just, <laughs> I've it got just does not make right. any sense. Yeah, no, it yeah. doesn't. And, and that becomes, you know, one of the many contributing factors to this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look at a whole constellation of things that led to this event and mental health is absolutely part of it. Um, certainly the ease with which this individual got his hands on a gun is staggering all by itself. And then of course, Mm -hmm. there's the social media piece. I think what is important for people to understand though, is the way in which social media is changing. And by social media, I think we can take your broader definition of any app really that has communicative capabilities. Because that's really, I mean, that's all you need for social in this context. Um, you and I are being social right now. <laughs> it's not in the sure. sense of Facebook or, or YouTube. But, but the point is that so many of these services now are by default building in encryption in the communication tools themselves, which basically means that it's that much more difficult for law enforcement to see what's going on, even if they are investigating. And then related to that, And this is something that arises with respect to services, for instance, like Discord, where people are effectively running their own server within the Discord service. Mm -hmm. These individuals are determining who can see the content that they create, right? So with respect to, I don't know if it was this incident or actually I think it was the Buffalo assault, the individual had created a whole bunch of materials that he stored on Discord. And unlike Facebook and Instagram and some of these others, uh, Twitter, of course, which use the algorithms to maximize the audience for a particular piece of content, something like Discord is the reverse of that, where it's giving the user the capability to determine who gets to see it. And that's why it can be so difficult to investigate these cases before something happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you, you found that there was already some security tech involved in, in Uvalde um, that, yeah, right. that you've right. seen your research. Tell us about that, because I think that is really fascinating, too. Well, that was one of the lines in the newsletter that I published just after the Uvalde case. And mm-hmm. um, just as a shout out, if people want to keep track of the work that you and I are doing, newsletter.cybertraps.com. Uh, It's a great place to see what we're doing. But I mentioned in that last newsletter that schools that are paying for this kind of social media monitoring service really should step back and take a look at whether or not it's there's a good return on the investment. So in Uvalde, for instance, they had two pieces of uh, security tech in place. One was called Raptor, uh, Raptor Technologies which is a piece of ed tech used to monitor visitors coming in and out of the school, which obviously did no good whatsoever in this particular event. And then they use a program called Social Sentinel, which is designed to scan public facing social media posts for things that might be triggers or red flags for some of these events. And there are a whole bunch of different competitors for Social Sentinel. But the underlying concept is pretty straightforward. You've got a bunch of keywords. You run scans on vast quantities of social media content. 
And if something trips the wire, then the organization reaches out to the school. Two issues really immediately pop up. If we're talking only about public facing, that wipes out Snapchat. It wipes out um, all of the stuff with, not all of Snapchat, but a good chunk of it. It wipes out direct messaging. It wipes out Discord. All of these places now where kids are putting content because they want more control over who sees what they see. Um, so that's number one. And then number two, the challenge is, can this discovery and warning process be fast enough? Yeah, I, I mean, that's really the, the question. So in going back to the example from Minority Report, the thought police, like the, um, these beings that could sense what people were thinking and kind of predict the future, they would be able to say like, this is going to happen in this many minutes. And, you know, you could deploy the, the task force to go take care of that. But that, you know, he, he did not say in a public forum, I'm going to use this gun to go shoot up an elementary school. And that is, so therefore, like, you can't say that just because somebody posts um, images of a gun, that that's what they're going to do. Now, we can see correlation between people who have shot up schools that they did post those things. Right. But there's a lot of kids who are interested in guns for completely uh, non-nefarious purposes and are fascinated by that idea. And certainly our media, you know, um, portrays guns in a, in a, in a powerful way that says these are, these are huge weapons of, destruction that you can do something with and glamorizes it in, in many movies. And I think that all of these things combining just makes it really difficult to say, like, he, here's the thing that tells us that this is what he was going to do. It's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, just in listening to you describe it, <laughs> it's hard not to have sort of a sense of despair about how complicated all of this is. And we haven't even really begun to talk about the amplifying effect of social media, right? I mean, one of the things that's particularly uh, horrifying is the, uh, the fact that some individuals view this in a scorecard way, you know, that there's a, an extremely small, fortunately, subset of this community that is actually looking at who's going to be the most effective, that is to say, create yeah. the most carnage. And you wouldn't have had that without 4chan or without Facebook, without whatever, you know, whichever services Discord feed into that sense of competition and chaos. And that's one of the things that underscores for me how multifaceted the solution has to be. And I guess in terms, in practical terms for schools, because I do want to make sure that, that yeah. we don't leave people just banging their heads against the wall. You know, what schools can and should do is, is always an interesting question. I do think every school system should take a long, hard look at any social monitoring program to really think through whether the program is actually going to help with the specific problem we're dealing with. And along those lines, I think one of the things we should talk about are some of the uh, possible detriments of having too much surveillance material or surveillance technology 
in a school. So that's number one. The other thing I think that is important, and it, it doesn't exactly answer the situation if you've got someone coming from outside the community, but we have talked a lot about the culture of cyber safety, this idea of creating an environment in which individual members of the school community are watchful and informed about what's going on. Like you said, I thought it was a really great way to phrase it, that you wanna get eyes on somebody that you may have concerns about because you're going to know that individual and be in a position to help assess what their mental state is. Yeah, and that's, that's really important because you can, you can prevent a lot just by being present. And, and that's where if you, so I had a student who had some severe mental disabilities and he would threaten to blow up the school and shoot the school all the time. And there was no way that he could possibly do that. And so every time he said something like that, we would have to call his parents and say, he made a threat today. Do you have any weapons? Do you have anything that he could do to, to actually do this? And mm -hmm. we would just stay in, in contact with them. And they would say, no, we don't have any guns. We don't have anything that he could use to make an explosive. There is nothing like that in our home. And, but we still, you know, followed up and, and chatted about that. Now, because of his disability, this was an aspect of his disability, and he just could not could not handle not making threats. It was it was too much. Now, that compared with somebody where they actually could do that or have the means, you definitely have to approach that very differently. And this is, you know, a, maybe a little bit off tangent, but um, expelling a student from school for when they do have access gets them off of your radar and mm. makes it harder to know when they are doing those things. And this is part of what is challenging about the system is this kid was 18. I believe he was a senior at the high school last mm -hmm. I understood and, but he wasn't going to school and wasn't participating in the educational process. From what I understand, I, I don't know the, the truth of that, but if he's not participating in the school, and, and what's going on, then there's no way to know what his mental state is and what his capabilities are. And that is a dangerous place to be because then you can be surprised. And if he's going to school every day, you know what's going on. You could talk to him and say, hey, you've gotten a gun recently. We saw these pictures on social media. And you could actually have a conversation with him and see what's going on. And if you fear that he could do something, then you could take action to, to prevent that from happening. That's an amazing thing, Jethro, to think of uh, you and other educators having to have those conversations. Though. Yeah, and it's not fair. Like, it shouldn't be happening. But at the same time, you know, we, we as educators recognize that we are part of a community in helping to raise, helping parents raise these kids. And so we need to take steps that may be difficult for parents to take. And sometimes that means having hard conversations with parents and with students about potential threats that either of them are making or, or doing and things that could be pushing them to, to do things that they would later regret. Well, this is where we get into that broader concept, right, of the culture of cyber safety, because it's not just the frontline educators like yourself. It's everybody 
who's involved in the mm-hmm. school community from, you know, you all the way through the staff to the parents, to the kids themselves. And that seems to me to be an important first step, that that is something concrete schools can do to really mm-hmm. elevate the importance of talking about these issues and helping people to understand the role that they can play in keeping everyone safe. And, you know, you do wonder whether or not, you know, this particular individual had people who knew him in the high school who may not have been social media friends, but may have seen behaviors that should have raised some potential concerns. I mean, obviously this is all speculative, but I think that there's a lot of different aspects here that schools can focus on. We've certainly talked about digital citizenship from kindergarten forward, helping kids to understand what their responsibilities are online. Um, I think all of that can be helpful in these kinds of situations. Um, In terms of the surveillance tech itself, a couple of things that I did want to um, mention as we kind of begin to wrap this up, that um, first of all, if you take a look at some of the resources that I compiled for the show notes, um, one of the things that I found interesting was that people have been doing a fair amount of research with respect to surveillance technology, and we really don't have any good evidence that it actually works yet. So that's the first thing. This is why we get back to that budget item as a former you know, finance chair. I'm always yeah, on top of that. Um, so if, if it's not actually going to produce the results you want, then the question becomes, are there other costs that you should be aware of? And people raise these concerns. And again, we're all debating the different aspects here. But for instance, there's some concern that surveillance technology, whether you're dealing with social media monitoring or facial recognition, may have built-in biases with respect to profiling. Um, that's, a, that's an issue. More than anything else, and we alluded to this with the Orwell 1984, if you're sending kids to a place where they are always under surveillance and they know that, you're really conditioning them to accept surveillance, which is not something we should want our children to be comfortable with. They should question the need for surveillance. And I realize that's not necessarily the outcome a more authoritarian government is looking for, but I, will, I, I defend strongly the idea that kids should not constantly feel that they're being watched in that way Mm -hmm. yeah i i absolutely agree and the the more that we do that in schools the more the more they feel like that's what they're doing is is being surveilled and we're conditioning them to to think that that is okay and the other aspect of that is that if we if we assume the worst about our kids coming to school every day then they they one may start living up to those four expectations, (laughs) which is no fun, which I've experienced also. But the other thing is that we do things that make school feel like it is a a place where you are not wanted, where you're not trusted. And so, you know, the, the adage of, if you're not doing anything wrong, you have nothing to hide cuts both ways, right? If, if I'm, if you're surveilling me, you must think that I'm doing something wrong. Therefore, why should I make good choices if you already think that I'm making bad choices? See, that's a very subtle point. I like that a lot. <laughs> and one that teenagers especially pick up on very, very easily because yes, they do. 
they think, you know, if you, if you don't trust me, then I, I'm not going to pretend and I'm just going to do all the worst things because you expect it of me anyway. Right. And, um, and so we don't want to do things that make schools feel like prisons. We don't want to do things that make schools feel like you are not welcome or trusted or cared about here. We need to do things that increase connection, that increase people looking out for each other in a healthy, positive way and not things that decrease that. And unfortunately, with social media, I believe that even though we are digitally connected, we are emotionally more disconnected than we ever have been before. And, and it seems all- to be just going worse and worse. Well, and, and that is exactly the work we're doing, because I think there are also ethical divisions that are arising with respect to all of us. And so that's our fight. That's what we're that's here right. to <laughs> um, Look, one of the probably the last point with respect to surveillance tech that I'll raise, because it, it, I think is a, an important one, is this idea of mission creep, right? You know, the old saying that if all mm-hmm. you've got a, is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if a school district is spending X tens of thousands of dollars on surveillance technology, they're going to want to get some results from it. And so one of the things that people have been monitoring and and seeing is this idea that more and more minor infractions get punished because you got to show that you're using it for something. And I think Mm -hmm. that this creates that sort of prison environment that you were referencing And not surprisingly, there's some beginning evidence that this kind of surveillance technology actually lowers student performances in schools that use it. Because of course the kids are distracted, they're worried about this other stuff, it it creates hostility and suspicion. Who can learn under those circumstances or at least learn well? Yeah, absolutely, I agree. I think the, the other aspect of that is that when kids feel like they're being watched, then they try to do what the observer wants them to do. And, and it's hard to tell sometimes what exactly that is. And I think, you know, I, for example, I'm vehemently opposed to things like turnitin.com where you check for plagiarism. And it, the reality is, is that if you are assigning something that can be plagiarized and then that's your problem as the teacher, that is <laughs> right. not the student's problem. And so you need to do a better job of assigning whatever it is that you're assigning to make sure that it's not plagiarizable. And if it is, then you need to teach kids how to not plagiarize. And, and that's an important role. And all these things that, um, that use AI and technology to make it easier to catch people doing wrong are all created in my mind for the wrong purpose, that you're trying to catch someone doing something wrong instead of using it to help you do whatever it is you're trying to do better. And, and that's, not a, that's not the right foot to start out on. And so it leads to all these things about distrust and you don't believe in me and you don't value me. All those things come and that decreases connection and the connection is what is going to prevent these things from happening in the future. Excellent, very well said. Well, let me close up then with a couple of uh, reminders for people. As I said, we've got um, our usual array of resources in the show notes. We do want to give a particular shout out to one of our, uh, probably our most common guest, (laughs) most frequent guest, uh, Dr. Glenn Lipson, who's a forensic psychologist out in California. And if you go through our show archives on cybertraps.com, 
Um, he's done two or three interviews with us on these kinds of issues and, and some mm -hmm. of the challenges of identifying people who might pose problems within the schools. Um, I will put some specific links in the show notes because we won't uh, publish this for a day or so. Uh, so that'll give me some time to add some material and then people can go and listen directly to what Dr. Lipson has to say. Yeah, very good. I, great stuff. Dr. Lipson's awesome. <laughs> He's really been a good guy. All righty, Jethro, I know you've got uh, schmoozing to do, so uh, <laughs> we will wrap up our episode today. Uh, in the coming weeks, we will continue the coverage of the Cybertraps podcast for emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. Uh, we'd love it if you would reach out to us if you have <laughs> if you have questions or topic or guest suggestions. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this conversation. If so, please leave us a five-star rating in your podcast service. We appreciate you being here and look forward to seeing you next week on the Cybertraps podcast. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.